Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her book, Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence, acclaimed author Karen Armstrong writes that in the West, the idea of that religion is inherently violent is now taken for granted. It seems self-evident. As one who speaks on religion, she says, I constantly hear how cruel and aggressive it's been. A view that eerily is expressed in the same way almost every time. Religion has been the cause of all the major wars in history. Armstrong asserts that the problem lies not with the multifaceted activity we call religion, but in the violence embedded in our human nature and the nature of the state. Dr. Karen Armstrong is a scholar, author, and commentator, as well as a former Roman Catholic nun. And leaving the convent in 1969, she pursued an understanding of major religions and their common understandings of compassion and the Golden Rule. Uh, the book A History of God was published in 1993. Several other bestsellers have uh, followed. And uh, she was awarded the TED Prize uh, fairly recently, uh, 2008, to launch the Charter for Compassion. Karen Armstrong will be one of the major speakers at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. The Parliament runs uh, Thursday through Monday at the Salt Palace Convention Center. Uh, Karen Armstrong, it's so a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, so I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit about your background before we get into this uh, th- this subject. You uh, you set out to be a, a Catholic nun. Uh, I think you were a nun for a while. I was a nun for seven years when I was a, a young girl. Um, I was far too young. I was only 17 when I entered my convent. Far too young to make a decision like that. But I was a stubborn teenager, wouldn't listen to anybody. Um, and I, um, I eventually I had to leave. Um, not very many people can live lives of total poverty, total chastity, total obedience, and I was not one of them. Um, and I left, though with great sadness, really, after seven years, and uh, then pursued my studies at, at Oxford University. And you've said that you, uh, you became a uh, Dawkins-esque uh, atheist. Uh, well, yes, I, I, I'd had a difficult time in my convent, um, I'd seen religion perhaps in its less uh, positive uh, phase. Uh, there wasn't much kindness in there, not much compassion. Um, and um, I, uh, I, I, I found that, I, that God just simply dropped away from me. Um, and I, I, I wanted nothing to do with religion ever, ever again, as I thought. Um, but, you know, if I hadn't d- done that... Um, I wouldn't be doing what I had to de- uh, what I'm doing today. I mean, um, in a sense, uh, my life has is rather nun-like. I've never married. I live alone, and I spend my days these days writing, talking, and thinking about God and spirituality, which is probably the kind of thing I was hoping to do when I entered the convent. You ended up in that that kind of life anyway. Uh, so you you uh, are famous as a writer uh, about religion. H- how did that happen? Uh, a series of career disasters. Uh, this was not what I intended to do at all. I studied English literature at Oxford, and my uh, plan was to become a, a professor of English literature um, in a, teaching in a university. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, I failed my uh, PhD at Oxford with horrible publicity. Then I became a school teacher for some years, uh, and for six years I taught English literature, English in, in a girls' school in London, um, and lost my health due to, and lost my um, job because of ill health. I, I have a form of epilepsy. Um, then I w- fell into television for a while. Um, I uh, had published my first book at that time about my life in the convent, 
and uh, a television channel, Channel 4, was just opening up in uh, London. And uh, they rang me up and asked me to, if I'd like to write and present a six-part documentary series on St. Paul uh, in Jerusalem, uh, working with an Israeli film company. And I said yes, because I was out of work. And it was there that I became interested, first of all, in, in the Middle East um, and, and its problems. But also there, I encountered Judaism and Islam for the first time. Um, in Jerusalem, you, uh, can't, you bump into these faiths at every turn, and you find them jostling, sometimes uneasily, with Christianity at the same sites, sacred sites. And I started to study the the, uh, these other faiths and found that there was much in them that um, appealed to me, uh, that, I, that I could really relate to. And they also showed me what my own Christianity had been trying to do at its best. And that's really when I started uh, studying world religion. And then I think uh, it's 9-11, it's post-9-11 that uh, propelled you into uh, you know, a much more public role. You, you became Unfortunately, a, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I had by that time written um, a, a biography of the Prophet Muhammad. I'd uh, written a book on uh, religious fundamentalism and a short history of Islam. And after 9-11, people were, in, in the United States particularly, were very anxious to learn about Islam. And so I, I was actually in America at the time. On, I was packing to come to the United States when the, when the atrocity actually happened on September the 11th. I was supposed to fly out the following day. And when I finally got to America, um, uh, in, I was spending some time at Harvard University. Um, I really didn't see the inside of a library because I was, we were talking, trying to explain um, that what, what, what had happened, why had happened, and that you couldn't put this all down to religion. Mm -hmm. And as you write in, in the book, our modern times are, are exceedingly violent, and yes. some, some are saying, and it seems like to be a growing number of voices, that religion is just inherently violent. And of course, Islam is front and center, and, and some people are saying Islam is just inherently violent. And of course, this book is is a rebuttal to that. I wonder mm -hmm. what what do you say? Uh, this thing that you say you you encountered this this idea from taxi drivers and you know just people on yeah. the street that religion's been the cause of all the major wars in history. I wonder if we could start there. What uh, what do you yeah, say? Yeah, it's a it's an odd remark, really, because the two world wars of the last century were not caused by religion. Obviously, they were caused by secular nationalism, um, and. Uh, uh, historians of warfare tell us that we never go to war for a single reason. There are always multiple interlocking uh, motivations involved, uh, financial, economic, uh, territorial, political, uh, social, um, all of them. As, uh, and, and religion um, is, is, is just, just one of those factors. And that if we concentrate solely on religion and fail to take these other factors into account, we're behaving very irrationally and not looking at the situation we're in with it logically and clearly, which is what we need at the moment. Also, experts in terrorism tell us that whatever the motivation involved, whatever the ideology, uh, terrorism is always inherently political. It's always about changing the status quo it's always about trying to force 
a, a regime to change its policies or to grab power or to unseat a, a regime from power. Uh, but it's never entirely due to religion. And it struck me that this is just this is just a lazy and inaccurate and indeed prejudiced way of looking at the current situation we're in, which is very dangerous and which we need uh, all our wits about us and take everything into account. Mm. I'm not saying that religion is not implicated in these atrocities. Obviously it is. But it's never the sole, nor is it ever the, even the chief reason. When we talk about uh, 9-11, you take on, you know, several uh, violent events, uh, especially in the, in the in the modern. Well, you go back to you know ancient Sumerians, but to bring it back, to bring it forward to the modern world. Uh, so, so nine eleven. You know, you you hear the words jihad, and uh, you know the nine eleven attackers are all Muslim, and at least uh, some of them are talking about the fact that they're doing this for for Islam. Yeah, um, let's let's start with that word jihad, for example. Um, it, it's now become a sort of English word now, hasn't it? It's in, entered our vocabulary, and we think it, of it as essential to Islam, a central peanut. But in fact, the word jihad uh, and its derivatives occurs only 47 times in the whole of the Quran, and in only 10 of those uh, instances does it refer uh, unequivocally to warfare. Uh, the word means endeavor, struggle. And the Quran says it's also a jihad, a struggle, an effort to give food to somebody when you have very little food yourself. That's also a jihad. Um, and sometimes uh, the, you, ha- you have to fight, but always only in, in, in self-defense. And, uh, you know, and, and, and as soon as your enemy sues for peace, the Quran says you must at once uh, stop fighting, laying, laying down your arms. Um, so um, all world religions uh, which, which have become involved with the state uh, have developed um, a military ideology. Part of the problem is our understanding of the word religion. Um, we in the modern West think of religion as something uh, as a sort of separate activity, something set apart from secular activities such as politics or statecraft, um, but. No, uh, and it's, we see it as um, uh, uh, an ideology centered usually on a supernatural God with a defined set of beliefs and practices and an, a particular organization. But no other uh, culture has anything like this idea of religion. Um, and it would seem very strange to people even in uh, Europe before the, about the year 1700. Um, in the pre-modern world, religion permeated all activities. Uh, the, in, the, the Oxford English Dictionary, Oxford Classical Dictionary, tells us that there's no word in Greek or Latin that corresponds to the English religion or religious. And in Arabic, the word din, which we translate as religion, means a whole way of life. Um, so religion permeated all activities. Um, like just as you put uh, flavoring into a cake, for example, and it, 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 it subs- goes right the way through the entire cake, and you can't take that flavor out uh, and separate it, uh, religion uh, was, was to do with social life, domestic life, and political life, because we're meaning-seeking creatures, and we always want to find some ultimate value in what we do. 
And so when we created civilizations, which are all founded on force and maintained by force and um, uh, religion, uh, uh, warfare acquired a sacral activity too. But that's true of every single world faith that's been entangled with statecraft and government. So uh, then religious versus secular that's that's a that's a fairly modern thing isn't it we it, and we, yes. we we want is, we want to see ourselves as secular uh, we uh, we regard ourselves as as, as secular um, that means uh, the word secular means world the world sake comes from the latin seculum um, and we've separated religion and politics at the time of the enlightenment in the west it was a very important part of our modernization. And in many ways, it's been good for religion uh, because um, it, um, when, when a, a, a faith like Christianity, which, be, which preaches absolute equality uh, and justice for all without exception, when that gets stank, tangled up with, the st- with state and government, all states are, have inherent inequalities. All states uh, are in, inherently violent. No state, however peaceable it is, could ever afford to disband its army. Um, and so inevitably, uh, a, a tradition that may have started out very peaceably, but will become, um, uh, will, will, will acquire a militant wing. And uh, so for us in the West, Secularism was part of our modernization. It was part of the way we created the modern world. In other parts of the world, however, uh, it's, uh, it, it has been more problematic. Secularism in the Muslim world, for example, uh, under, after the colonial period, was often imposed very violently. We had uh, several we had a few cent- couple of centuries to develop our secular institutions, and we were able to do so at our own pace, according to our own dynamic. We didn't have to follow somebody else's um, uh, program. But in uh, the Middle East, for example, secular people had to secularize very fast. Uh, it, it was felt as something foreign, something imposed on the people, not coming from their own inner dynamic. And very often it was imposed violently. The Shahs in Iran used to make their soldiers go out with their bayonets, taking off the women's veils with their bayonets and ripping them to pieces in front of them. In 1935, uh, the Shah gave his soldiers orders to shoot at hundreds of unarmed demonstrators who, in one of the holiest shrines of Iran, who were peacefully protesting against obligatory Western dress. And hundreds of Iranians were killed that day. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which began as a, simply a reforming institution, acquired a militant edge in prison, uh, where President Nasser in the 1950s interred thousands of members of the Muslim Brotherhood, often without trial, often for doing nothing more incriminating than handing out leaflets. Um, and in these horrible jails, uh, it, they, they, they became radicalized. Um, so um, secularism, which we have found to be positive and liberating in the West, liberating not least for religion, has often been experienced as, as, as disturbing, cruel, and even violent in, in, in other parts of the world, where, which... Where, sec- where it's been imposed as something foreign and not something that they, people have developed on, under their own steam. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Karen Armstrong. Uh, you've likely read her books. Uh, she's a scholar, author, commentator. And uh, the latest book is Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence. And it's out in paperback with a postscript, uh, postscript I should say, uh, in which uh, Karen Armstrong responds to uh, some events that have happened uh, uh, after the publication of the hardback book, including um, the Charlie Hebdo incident in France, uh, also the rise of ISIS. Uh, we'll uh, talk about uh, those things and uh, a bit of the history here as we go along today. You can join the program at 1-800-826-1495. Hope that you will with your question or comment for Karen Armstrong, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. Karen Armstrong is uh, coming to uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, she'll be one of the major speakers at the Parliament of the World's Religions. That's happening at the Salt Palace Convention Center beginning on Thursday and running through Monday. More following the break. What does it really mean to check your privilege? If you're born with an advantage because of your race, class, or gender, what's your moral responsibility in the face of it? Is it enough just to name your privilege? Unpacking the politics of privilege, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, delivering student scholarships through programs like the Aggie License license plate. Information at usu.edu slash alumni slash a plate. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is acclaimed author Karen Armstrong. She's authored numerous books on religion, including The Case for God, A History of God, The Battle for God, Holy War, Islam, Buddha, and The Great Transformation. There's a memoir called The Spiral Staircase, and uh, she was awarded the TED Prize and has been working on the Charter for Compassion. We'll talk about that as we go along as well. The latest book is Fields of Blood, Religion, and the History of Violence. And uh, there's a postscript updating, uh, responding to uh, current events in the paperback version of the, of the book. Uh, Karen Armstrong is one of the major speakers at the Parliament of World's Religions in Salt Lake City. That's at the Salt Palace Convention Center, and it runs Thursday through uh, through Monday. Karen Armstrong, I want to, uh, no doubt you've you know heard uh, some of these arguments put forward by people like Sam Harris and Bill Maher. I want to read this, uh, just a brief uh, section from Bill Maher. This is from his program. This is from September. Um, he uh, he says that uh, he's calling out his fellow liberals. He says, liberals hear no evil and speak no evil when it comes to misogyny and Islam. He cites 98% of Somalian women have suffered uh, female genital mutilation. Um, and then he says, to count yourself as a liberal, you have to stand up for liberal principles like freedom of speech, freedom to practice any religion you want without fear of violence, freedom to leave a religion, equality for women, equality for minorities, including homosexuals. These are liberal principles. But then when you say that in the Muslim world this is lacking, they get upset. And so this is moving away a little bit from the, you know, the, the, terrorism, but uh, problems, uh, you know, is, is seen in the Muslim world. And as Sam Harris puts it, he, he calls Islam the motherload of uh, bad ideas. I wonder how you, how you respond. Uh, well, we've had this, uh, I, we've, the West has been at loggerheads with Islam ever since the, the Crusades. Um, I think what, uh, what you're seeing, seeing in, um, in, in Islam today is 
uh, uh, people who, who, who have not yet fully modernized. I mean, it wasn't in, in the Christian world uh, before the modern period. Uh, it, people who were left the faith were, were, were persecuted for that. Uh, homosexuality was certainly uh, not allowed, even in my childhood in the UK. Uh, in 1962, we, until 1962, we were still putting homosexuals into prison. Um, and, and you have exactly the uh, uh, gender inequality. Uh, it was, was, was part of the pre-modern uh, package. Uh, and it, it, it occurs in all faiths, even those that claim total equality. Uh, Islam, actually, uh, it, for as regards women, um, Islam, the Quran, uh, uh, which was uh, revealed in the 7th century, uh, gave women rights of inheritance and divorce that Western women wouldn't have until uh, the 20th century. Um, and uh, they, they had legal rights that, that Western women just wouldn't have at that time. And, 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 and the Quran has a good message to women, just as the New Testament does. Um, but then, of course, uh, the, the, all, most faiths get dragged back into the old patriarchy. What we're seeing here is, is a people who, have, uh, who are still in the, in the process of modernization, which is always a very, very difficult rite of passage. It was difficult for us, um, and um, it, we are still uh, not quite sure how, how, how to live in the modern world. We've, we've, we've got all kinds of, of problems. But uh, these uh, wild remarks about Islam by people like Sam Harris, uh, just, just they're not accurate and they're not helpful at this time. Uh, we've got big problems at the moment. We don't need to create fictional problems too. Hmm. Uh, uh, now you know tolerance is a is a great thing, right? And we we want to we want to be tolerant. We want to check ourselves against this. Yeah, I'm not keen on the word tolerance. Uh, actually, yeah. oh, oh, are I'm, you? Are you? Um, You're not. Yeah, it, if you look at the Latin de- derivation of that name, it comes from the Latin root that means to put up with. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I think we've got to go further than tolerance. Mm. I think we need to start appreciating one another and uh, respecting other. No one really wants to be tolerated. Uh, they want to be respected. And I, so I think let, let's move beyond tolerance. Mm. Um so, so uh, beyond tolerance, too, as you say, respect. Respect. What, what else? Respect. I think. Uh, re- is, respect. Is, 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 okay. To, to just see one another as equal with problems, we all have problems, uh, but but to see one another, each other as equals, not putting up with uh, people as though this was some kind of dreary duty. Uh, so respect. So how do we go about that, uh, given the fact that, uh, you know, and we've got problems too, but as so we see it in the, in the Muslim world, uh, you know, it's some very real problems uh, that, that we, uh, you know, female genital mutilation, we, we hardly disapprove of that, I think rightly so, in, in the Western world. How much of that is religion and how much is custom and culture? How do, you, could, do we tease that out uh, and is that important? That's really, uh, it's, that's not an Islamic uh, problem. It's, it's chiefly an African problem. Um, and uh, the, when Islam went into uh, Africa during its uh, imperial days, uh, it picked up. It, some some Muslims practiced that, but it's an African practice. N- not not nothing in in the Quran about that. Hmm. Uh, you write in the book that we are increasingly interconnected and at the same time increasingly polarized. Yes. And the, well, the, that's we, we tough are, to navigate. We've created. Um, a world in which, a a global market in which we're deeply interdependent. 
Uh, economically, we're interdependent. When stocks fall in one part of the world, uh, mark, the markets plummet all around the globe that day. Um, we are, we uh, face the same environmental problem. We're interconnected on electronically on the World Wide Web. Um, and uh, politically now, uh, what happens in Afghanistan today can have, or Pakistan today, can have repercussions in London or New York tomorrow. Um, and our, our job now is to take what our scriptures all tell us, uh, scriptures in all faiths tell us, we have to re uh, uh, observe uh, compassion, respect, uh, for all peoples, love your enemies, said Jesus. Uh, love the stranger, says Leviticus. Reach out to all tribes and nations, says the Quran. And I think unless we do that now, unless we implement the golden rule globally, do not treat others as you would not like to be treated yourself, the world is simply not going to be a viable place. So uh, we, we now need to... Um, recognize that we can't live without one another. Our only hope of surviving uh, on this planet uh, is to uh, respect other people's um, problems. And if we, if we British had behaved according to the golden rule in our colonies when we had an empire, I don't think we'd be having so many political problems today. How much of this can be laid at uh, the Western world? How, how, much, how much of this blame? The cycle well, of violence. Uh, we, uh, let, let's just look at Britain for a moment. Um, the uh, partition of Palestine, for example, uh, was our British idea. The partition of India, which was a catastrophic mistake in many ways, uh, when India was divided into India and Pakistan, um, seven million people were displaced and one million people died in the uh, in, in the ensuing chaos as, as they split up these countries. Um, and so the, one of the things that make, interconnects us is that our histories are interconnected. Just before the break, you mentioned IS or ISIS. Um, well, this is the direct outcome of the Iraq war, um, which, which has helped to destabilize the region. The, ISIS, the roots of ISIS lie in the insurgency that developed against the American and British occupation of, of, of the country. So uh, we've acted in these regions, and we, there are, we've acted in them particularly in the Middle East because of oil, um, and that has had repercussions because our actions always have consequences. Um, and it's important that we recognize this. Um, and and not, not see, I, I found this, I mentioned earlier that I went to Jerusalem uh, years back in the 1980s, to uh, make a television program about St. Paul. I was working in Jerusalem, and I knew nothing when I arrived in Jerusalem about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, but talking to both the Palest Palestinians and Israelis, uh, I found the one thing they had in common was how awful the British had been. Um, and I realized, well, it's not just the Middle East problem. In a sense, it's our British problem, too, where we are somehow involved in that. Our histories are intertwined. And I think one of the things that is troubling to me about the modern world is that we, we don't learn enough history. Uh, we can't really understand individuals unless we know about their past. 
what sufferings they've endured in the past, uh, what, what makes them wake up in the night in fear, uh, what are their joys, what are their great achievements. Unless we know a person's past, we, 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 we will never fully understand or, or value them. And, uh, or, and, and we need to know now other people's histories as well as our own. I wonder if we could follow up on, on ISIS, uh, the so-called yeah. Islamic State. Um, you write in the book, uh, many Western people believe that uh, Islamic State is decisive proof that Islam is chronically addicted yeah. to violence. So why, why is it not Well, um, proof? It, I'm, again, as I said right at the beginning, I'm not saying religion's not implicated in all of this. Obviously it is, just as Christianity was implicated in the, uh, in, 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 in the Crusades or the Inquisition. Uh, but uh, in uh, the, 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 the core leadership of IS is secular. Uh, the leaders, the original leaders, uh, which developed during uh, this movement, which developed during the insurgency uh, following the Iraq War, um, the, they were all members of Saddam's disbanded army. That is, they were secular socialist Baptists. So here you have a perfect example of something that is religious as well as secular, a, a mixture, as it were. The French hostage, uh, who was held for 10 months by IS, uh, said that the discourse of his captors was extremely secular, and that when the hostages asked if they could have a Quran, they didn't have one handy. They didn't, uh, they, they, and similarly, the, uh, an, uh, a journalist writing for Foreign Policy magazine uh, was talking to IS supporters in Jordan, and he said they never once raised the, pros- the, the topic of religion. It, it was that their talk was secular. And um, uh, when the call to prayer came, and in, believe me, in Amman, you can't miss the call to prayer, it's quite deafening, uh, none of them got up to pray. Uh, so there's a, a strong secularist core to IS, and also a lot of uh, religion, but all these people who are flocking to um, uh, join the uh, IS, they're not all uh, devout Muslims. Uh, two wannabe jihadis who left Britain last year to join uh, the IS had ordered from Amazon a book called Islam for Dummies, wow. which uh, uh, shows you the kind of the level of um, of, of the. Uh, of, of, of Islamic knowledge that they had. Um, forensic psychiatrists have interviewed uh, all the people in um, Guantanamo Bay who were involved in the 9-11 plot. So that's about some 500 people. And one of them, Mark Sageman, has published his findings. And he wasn't a liberal softy like me. He, he was a former CIA officer. And he said that of all these people, only about 20% of them had had a regular Muslim upbringing. The others were either new converts uh, and with the very sketchy knowledge of Islam, or else they, had, they were self-taught, like the, the guys that bought Islam for dummies. Um, and that many of them um, know very little about the Quran. They often don't start studying it seriously until they get to prison. He said that the problem is not Islam, he decided, but at rather ignorance of Islam. If they knew, that, knew about the, the whole faith, this might have deterred them from their crimes. The biggest reason that uh, they found um, 
is for people going off to join these these movements um, has been a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of futility in life. Um, and uh, I was talking uh, last year to in Britain to one of our chief uh, military uh, philosophers, and he said that what has driven young men to the battlefield all over the centuries throughout history has been boredom, a sense of life being sort of trivial and meaninglessness and pointless. Um, and uh, in many cases, too, uh, if they, many of them belong to immigrant groups in, in Britain uh, who are, they, they don't feel that they are appreciated by the host culture, they feel they're marginalized, and therefore there's a sort of sense of, of grievance there, too. But things are much more complicated than uh, just people reading the Quran and then immediately race off to join IS. There's, there's a lot of multiple interlocking secular as, as well as religious passions involved. Before we go to another break, I wonder if you'd uh, give me your take on the, the, the shootings at uh, Charlie Hebdo. This is uh, January yes, 7th indeed. of this year. Uh, Twelve journalists were, were shot, uh, shot there. Yes, that was a dreadful action, um, a, a crime. Um, but um, there's a number of things to be said about it. Uh, um, number one, we didn't spend any time. We were so struck by the Charlie Hebdo, there was not much discussion of the, uh, of the holding up the, the killings in the Jewish supermarket, even though the uh, hijacker there said he was specifically said he was acting on behalf of the Palestinians. So again, we were ignoring the political and looking at the um, just just at the at the shootings of the of the um, in, in in the magazine, um, and it's assumed that it was just out of sheer uh, fanaticism, uh, the, the fanatical devotion to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but uh, Al Qaeda took responsibility for that shooting, and Al Qaeda always has a political motive. Its uh, its aim is to create a clash of civilizations. And here, this, this was a clash between, um, um, they say, our, you, you attack our sacred value, uh, which is uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and we'll attack yours, that is freed, freedom, freedom of speech, which is a sacred value to us in the West. Not because it's supernatural, but because it is so deeply embedded in our way of life, uh, in our uh, economy, in the way we think, and uh, the, that it's unnegotiable. Um, and, but we have to remember uh, that freedom of speech, which was developed during the Enlightenment, and freedom generally, liberty, was only ever for Europeans. Uh, John Locke, who was the person who first philosopher to separate religion and politics, and was also wrote a book uh, about, about toleration. Uh, that tolerance did not apply to either Muslims or Catholics. He said the, the liberal state could not tolerate either liberals or Catholics. And here in the United States, uh, we're uh, founded on the principles of the Enlightenment, on liberty above all. Um, all men are created equal, uh, uh, this very proud assertion. But there was no liberty for the slaves uh, who the African slaves on the toiling on the American plantations, and no liberty for the Native Americans. Um, and so uh, from the very first, 
our Enlightenment freedoms were freedoms only for, uh, for Europeans. And many of the uh, political leaders, including my own prime minister, who were marching for freedom that day, had for decades, they, had, they headed countries that had for decades supported regimes in Muslim-majority countries, such as Iran or um, Egypt, uh, which had denied their people any freedom of expression at all. Uh, great, uh, uh, massive support for Saudi Arabia, for example. Mm. So um, freedom has uh, a double A. It's, a rather, it's wonderful for us, and we in the West enjoy freedom, but uh, this has not always been the case uh, for uh, people in other parts of the world. There was very little freedom of, of self-determination for the Muslims during their difficult rite of passage to modernity under uh, British or French rule in, mm. in the colonial period. But if you, br- if you bring it forward, we, we certainly, we hope, we've made uh, progress on some of those things, expanding freedom for, for more classes yes. of people in our society. And, and, and there is a strain of idealism, I think, you know, when we say we're going to ex- try to export democracy around the world, including in the, you know, the, yeah. the Muslim world. Absolutely. Uh, we, 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 we want to do that, but uh, it, 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 it's still far off. You see, democ- democracy is something that we developed, again, under our own steam. Um, and uh, I think the, when there was a huge survey taken um, after 9-11 by the Gallup poll, which uh, took, took place over seven years in 35 Muslim-majority countries. And uh, the re- results were extremely interesting. One of the top three things that uh, m- respondents uh, admired about the West, uh, whether they were politically radical or uh, politically conservative, was our democracy and freedom. They'd like some more democracies for themselves. And very often we have uh, supported governments that have denied them this. Let's take another break. When we come back more with uh, Karen Armstrong, uh, her latest book is Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence. You can join this program. Hope that you will if you have a question or comment at 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We reached our last segment with Karen Armstrong, acclaimed author, best-selling author of uh, many books on religion. Uh, the latest is Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence, which is now out in paperback with a postscript responding to Islamic State and Charlie Hebdo, who we've talked about here. Um, Karen Armstrong is uh, coming to Salt Lake City. She's one of the major speakers at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. That runs Thursday through Monday, and it's at the Salt Palace uh, Convention Center. You can join us here in the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, here's, a, here's an argument I've heard uh, several times. I wonder what you think about this. It goes something like this, uh, that there's a timeline of development for religions, and Islam is just in its violent phase. I don't think that's—I I think that's uh, rather—I I don't think that works, really. Um, I think uh, it, it, you have to remember that what the violent actions that we are seeing are, are committed by very, very few Muslims, indeed. Um, and that suicide bombing, for example, uh, was created not by religious people, but by uh, the Tamil Tigers, who uh, had no time for religion at all. Um, and uh, that, that uh, we, it's, it's more a question, I think, of a difficult passage to modernity here. Uh, every single uh, fundamentalist movement that I've studied in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam um, begins with what is perceived to be um, an assault by the liberal or secular establishment. Um, and, um, and, and, and this has and secularism, as I've said earlier in the program, has been imposed so violently in the Muslim world that it has often pushed uh, some Muslims into a more radical stance. Um, and a lot... So, no, I, 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 I don't take that, uh, really. Some people say, for example, well, they've never had a reformation like we've had. Uh, but Islam, like Christianity before the reformation, the Protestant Reformation, had many reform movements. Every single one of the world religions, Islam included, began as a reformation of an existing spirituality. Uh, we shouldn't privilege our Protestant Reformation and think of it as, the, as a unique occurrence. It was important only because it, it coincided with the birth of our modernization. Um, I think what it, it's much more a question of uh, there's, a, there, there, there's a, a, a distinct difference, as I've said throughout this, this conversation, between developing modernity under your own steam according to your own dynamic and having it imposed forcefully and far too rapidly from outside. Uh, you you were bought, of course, in this book, and we've talked about this all the way through the program, that the, the, <laughs> the idea in the West that uh, religion is inherently violent. You've given many examples of, of why we, you know, can't, shouldn't lay violence at the, at the door of religion. But the reverse, I, you know, some people I hear uh, saying the, the reverse maybe uh, uh, is true, which, which is that religion perhaps is not doing as much as it, it could to promote peace. Wait, wait, yeah. I think, I, I think this is something I shall be talking about at the Parliament. Uh, I think we all of us have to do what, you know, whether we're Muslim, Christian, uh, Mormon, uh, Jewish, uh, or, or we, we've all got principles uh, which tell us to uh, love our enemies, to reach out to those in pain, uh, and uh, to, un to uh, practice the golden rule. And I think 
uh, we're always saying how peaceable our religions are. Uh, we need to show that to the world uh, in a much more forceful way, not just leaving it up to the religious leaders. All of us, uh, whatever our faith, have to do more to activate that uh, compassionate uh, message that is inherent in all our faiths and, and make it a dynamic, active force in our dangerously polarized world. And the, the vehicle for this, is that the Charter of Compassion that you're working on? That was my, that was my idea for yes. it, uh, to bring it, it, it. The Charter was written, uh, composed not by me. It's a short document. You can find read it on charterforcompassion.org. Um, it was written by leading activists and thinkers representing six of the major world religions, um, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and, uh, and Confucianism. And it's a statement that uh, compassion is central to our spirituality, central to our morality. It means practicing the golden rule all day and every day, as Confucius said, and not confining it to our own particular group. Uh, we have to have concern for everybody, even, as Jesus said, even our enemies. And... Um, Somehow we've got, uh, lots of things are happening. One of the leaders of the Charter actually is Pakistan, uh, where uh, they've created a network of schools of compassion to train the leaders of tomorrow. Um, there are now 75 of these schools, um, and uh, each, each, uh, every three months, uh, two teachers from the school has to go uh, for a weekend of training uh, in, 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 uh, somewhere in Pakistan um, and <clears throat> compassionate teaching has been integrated into core subjects of the curriculum um, it, they, they say they will soon have a thousand schools and be reaching a million uh, growing children we've got to take action on, on this front Whether, one of the things that we're doing is creating a network of cities of compassion um, and where, where the mayor endorses the charter and promises to implement it practically in daily life. One of, one of the Karachi in Pakistan is one of these cities. So too is Louisville. Uh, and the mayor of Louisville uh, is, is, will be at the, uh, at the parliament uh, this, this coming week. Um, and they, they've done, uh, he, he has, uh, they were concentrating on homelessness, for example. And they have um, the, they bought a holiday in which they've put at the disposal of the homeless. They've also developed a mentoring program. There's a lot of disaffection among in, in the black community, whereby older kids take under their wing troubled younger kids. Um, so uh, there are all kinds of initiatives of this sort going forward to bring compassion to the forefront of our ethical uh, and moral, political and private life. So you're focusing on, on uh, practical uh, things. Yes. To, to yes, it's not enough just to sit say, I'm a compassionate person or concentrate on feeling. It has to be translated into action. Jesus said, not those of you who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those who fed, I, I was hungry, you gave me to eat. Thirsty, you gave me to drink. Sick, naked, and in prison, and you visited me. Action. Uh, to, uh, someone asked me once, what should a compassionate city be like? And I said it should be an uncomfortable city. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad once said, not one of you can be a believer and if he can sleep when he knows that somebody is hungry. 
And we are looking at suffering on a worldwide scale. Look at the migrants who are literally dying in their efforts to get into Europe, fleeing war zones, fleeing countries that can no longer support the population in, in Africa, for example. Um, and uh, instead of closing our hearts and doors to these people, somehow we have to realize that they are our brothers and sisters, and we have to coexist in respect on this planet. Well, we're at the end of our time. Uh, by the way, uh, are you working on another book? What uh, what can we look forward to? I'm sorry? Uh, are you working on another book? What's, yes, what's I the am. Next one? I'm, I'm just researching now a, a, a book about religion and the body. Oh, the role the body has always played in religion, uh, both in its spirituality, the way we have seen the divine enshrined in the human person, and uh, it, it's... It, the, the, it's also dealing with questions of sex and gender and death. Of course, the body dies. And uh, I, I feel that we're not necessarily in modern society dealing with death, old age, uh, and suffer sickness uh, as compassionately as we should. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Karen Armstrong, her latest book is Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence. It's out with uh, in paperback with a postscript dealing with uh, some uh, recent happenings. And uh, she is coming to Salt Lake City. She's one of the major speakers at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City at the Salt Palace Convention Center. Parliament runs uh, Thursday through Monday. Karen Armstrong, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I hope you'll join me tomorrow. My guest is uh, Jonathan Evison. Uh, he has a very interesting and funny new book out. It's called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. Join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.